Hi guys, this is uh, God's Side for the Side Truth. Today I have uh, another very special guest from Fox, Brian Kilmeade. How you doing, sir? All good. Thanks for having me on, Gad. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So let me, uh, for the people who don't know who you are, let me just read off here a quick uh, brief intro. You're the co-host of the top cable morning show, Fox and Friends, I think from 6 to 9 in the morning. You're the host of the national radio show, The Brian Kilmeade Show on Fox News Talk. You're the author of many books. Uh, We'll talk about your latest one that just came, will be coming out on paperback tomorrow. But earlier books, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, George Washington's Secret Six, and much earlier, almost 20 years ago, The Games Do Count, America's Best and Brightest on the Power of Sports, and the book that will be out tomorrow on paperback, The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. And I do have a small envious bone to pick with you 2.5 million books sold well it it helps that i have the the audience of fox to tell that it's out there so um that that gives me a head start and i just try to keep it simple and try to make history exciting i'm not trying to write for harvard or yale you're capable of doing that i can't <laughs> well you're you're very modest now let me ask you this i mean is there anything as you tackle these topics? I mean, you know, Andrew Jackson and Sam Houston and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, you would have thought that everything that could be said about those people has already been said, and yet you still find nuggets to talk about. How do you approach these kinds of projects with the confidence that you'll have something new and insightful to add to the huge collection of things written on those folks? Well, first thing I do, and the thing is when I do the things for Fox Nation, it gave me a chance to do a feature on the Hermitage, where, where it was the famous estate of Andrew Jackson. And I talk to them. I try to probe around. I look what's on the library in the library, and I think, what could I bring that's different? What could I focus on? For example, I never think that I could write the definitive biography on anything. If you read John Meacham's books, if you read Ron Chernow's books, uh, Washington, Hamilton, you never close it or grant and say, wow, they left a lot out. You know, you just don't. But I say, what if I could just create a passage of time and bring some spotlight to it? It doesn't get enough attention. And for example, if you ask me about Jackson, why did I pick the Jackson situation? I vividly remember being in school, hearing about the War of 1812, being fascinated by it, and wondering why we're only spending one day on it. Wait a second, Washington burned to the ground, uh, and we, we had a president that was sitting on a horse by himself, wondering if his wife was alive or dead, if his army would reconfigure, if the British would get revenge, and that would be it. Oh, it's not going to be on the test. Then I hear about the Battle of New Orleans from the 3rd Infantry, 2nd Division, I was able to go with them before the Iraq War. And they would tell me about the Cotton Ballers and, uh, you know, the Battle of New Orleans. And I erroneously said, yeah, I heard we won, but it was a battle that didn't need to be fought. And they quickly corrected me. And so did historians. And it was one of the most prolific wins in military history, especially of that time. We beat the number one world superpower uh, uh, that just defeated Napoleon. And we did it in about two and a half hours minimal casualties, 13, I think, in all, and wiped them out. We'd never be invaded again. And I thought, there's not a ton about this. And what if I can get some firsthand accounts? What if I could bring a video element to this? And what if I could bring new information uh, to the Battle of New Orleans? So you got the Andrew Jackson biography. John Meacham did it. But I was able to collect all that information, go down there, meet with the people and military experts. And I thought, okay, I got new stuff. Washington spies? 
It was right in my backyard. I looked at it for 20 years. They, they By definition, they still couldn't unwind. To this day, they haven't unwound all the mystery behind it. With the Tripoli Pirates, I was fascinated by the war on terror and the roots that took place. And people wrote in perspective, would write, you know, you know, the first war on terror, Jefferson fought. You know, that's what the Barbary Wars, that's what he fought. So anytime someone's writing about bin Laden in the big picture, what's their beef? They would write back to Libya and say, well, there was a problem then. What predated that? Well, Jefferson. Okay, let's hear about this. So I thought if I expose that and go to the Jefferson Library and find out that it need to be more examined more, there was there was a there was a there, there seemed to be a need for it. I felt like I could go there. And then with the Sam Houston, I did a future on the Alamo. And I said, guys, for people outside Texas, no one ever learns anything except the Alamo. And we lost. What was what was going on? And we would approach it. And I said, you know, what happened after? And I studied it for two years. And even though Texans learn about their history in fourth grade and eighth grade and first grade and never stop, everyone's descended of somebody. I thought, what if I did after the Alamo and how we won in 17 minutes and in the Battle of San Jacinto? And I bring that forward and humanize Sam Houston that everyone thought was going to be a president and mentored by Andrew Jackson, which brought me to the Civil War. And I got worried about the Civil War. I go, here we are with Black Lives Matter in the streets, cities burning down. The last thing you need is another white guy writing about the Civil War when what could be new? And I said, what about Frederick Douglass? What about Lincoln? But what about how they got along, how they met, how they how they uh, sparred from, from afar and eventually would come together to make America a better place? Wow. And I thought they had two American stories. So I just try to find an angle to history, make it accurate, make it clean, and then hopefully people get th get a thirst after reading it to learn more. Fantastic answer. Uh, one of the things that you probably know that I do research on in terms of my scientific work <clears throat> is evolutionary psychology, whereby you're studying things that are universal across time and place, right? Now, not everything in evolutionary psychology is about human universals, but one of the reasons why we love literature, why we love history is because oftentimes by studying those relics from a from a past by studying these fossils of the human mind, you can tell something about, you know, the invariant human nature that, you know, uh, connects us all. So right. notwithstanding that each of those books deal with a particular set of characters at a particular time period, are there any universal themes that you could distill? I mean, you don't have to go, I mean, you could certainly go through every book, but what are some themes that come to mind, whether it be your latest book or other books that speak to a universal Okay. Uh, reality. Got it. Got it. For, for uh, the non-expert, I'll just tell you what I picked up. All have vulnerabilities and liabilities. All were a little bit insecure. You know, all like, you know, you know, Washington, obviously, he was around these great intellects. He went to college. He never went to college. It always kind of wore on him a little bit that he felt as though some of these guys were the other founding fathers, even though they looked up to him in one way, he could never feel he could get to that spot because he didn't have the degree. I'm fascinated by that. You know, Andrew Jackson overcoming everything would clearly had a chip on his shoulder. When your family gets wiped out at a young age and you got to fend for yourself, you're literally alone in the world. You're going to have some rough edges. And he was determined to matter. And he was determined to uh, pay back the country that supported him and pay back the country that destroyed his family. Sam Houston drank too much, an underachiever, uh, needed to be mentored by someone like Jackson. You know, Jackson had people he looked up to, like, which was obviously Washington. And then with uh, Frederick Douglass 
and Abraham Lincoln, a thirst to prove themselves into matter and overcoming. And the other thing I found, too, is that when you have nothing, life is playing with house money. You know, so if you have a lot, you're worried about losing it all. What if you have nothing? And Andrew Jackson had nothing. Sam Houston was out on his own. He had nothing. You know, you had Frederick Douglass, literally born a slave. Abraham Lincoln, you know, arguably an abusive father. Mom dies at eight. This guy had to fend for himself, educate himself, despite his dad standing in his way. So all of them had things to overcome. All weren't perfect and all ended up uh, infamous. And and uh, someone who lasted the passage of time. The other thing I found humbling is the fact is that they were uh, they had problems. They had detractors. They had people. They stopped believing in themselves for a while. Uh, they had Sam Houston's sense situation. He clearly drank too much. And edge, you know, in Lincoln's situation, he doubted himself. He had depression. Would he would personal travails beyond description? You know, so. They all had these things to overcome, but yet we're still talking about him, reading about him. We know about Thomas Jefferson had uh, had slaves, hated that he had slaves, but didn't get rid of them. Knows what happened with with different relationships he had with different slaves that he had from Sally Emings on down. But I don't judge him. I study them. And I just think that the fact that there were problems in their character heartened me personally, that the fact that I'm not playing a perfect game and no one reading the book is either. No, you could still achieve greatness, whatever that is, in that time. And it goes back to another commonality, blatantly patriotic. They feel blessed that they were born in this country. And in Washington's case, able to create this country. And not so much judgmental, determined to make it better, rather than say why it is, determined to change things that they didn't like, even if it meant them dying in the process. So I think that their patriotism amidst the turmoil made me feel as though we're being foolhardy today, taking knees at football games and uh, trying to take down statues. Uh, I almost think it's juvenile compared to what these people went through to create what we have today, which is so much more, so much more perfect than it was when they left it. So it gives me a great perspective. And for them, I just think that they were, um, brilliant in their own time so they they had that but they all had their frailties i'll i'll come back to you know how they would view blm and george floyd and so on in a minute but i want to continue with the theme of of you know universal uh you know principles that define or shape history <clears throat> i recently was chatting with the, one of my children she's uh this is a daughter who's 13 years old and she was saying that you know she's doing really well in science and math but she hates geography and history it's so boring that and my answer was, well, that's probably because maybe your teacher is not teaching it well. If all you're d doing is memorizing in a rote manner, you know, which date this happened or that thing happened without understanding the greater context, without not without having the story that, you know, Brian Kilmeade is, is weaving together, then history does become sterile. So in all of your, you know, writing these books as, as, as a, if I can say, amateur historian, have you found that that might be the the secret sauce to how to get young Absolutely. kids excited about history? Yeah, here's the thing. When people say, well, I'm not into history, I understand. Like, I, I try in math. I get an A for effort and a C for my grade. I, I just don't have it. You know, I when I open up the directions to even something I get at Ikea that is supposed to be so easy, I got to sit down and concentrate. 
And I got to look at, I have to do everything it says. I can't skip a step. But when it comes to history, I absorb it. You know why? I don't deserve any credit. I like stories. What if I told you this story is true? What if I did it tell you who has relevance to you in your life and the society in which we live? What if I tell you they're living, breathing characters? And, and what if I tell you you can research and verify what happened and you can feel and see where they lived and where they walked? I mean, what I loved about the spies is I went right back to their house. I went right back to the stoop in which they stood, uh, the place in which they traveled, where they met. And I couldn't believe it. And the same thing when you go to Mount Vernon, you know exactly, you know, Washington describes his house and you could stand on his porch that he stood at. So if you tell kids, a fourth grader that, an eighth grader that, a 12th grader that, a college student that, these people who stand the test of time stood right where you stood. And here's the decision they made. What decision would you make if you were in their shoes? Let me paint the circumstances. Please tell me where you're born. I bring you through the passage of time. I bring you to that point. I tell you, put yourself there. I describe in detail what is there. And then I bring you to the place when possible. In Virginia, you know, it's a it's a godsend, obviously. In New York, in places in New York, you see all these wars and you see West Point and Benedict Arnold's escape and you see these signs everywhere. Uh, what is the history in your town? Where did it go and where, where did it live? And what about if I told you they wrote this book about your town that you live in? It's very hard for me to imagine kids roll their eyes on that. Hmm. So to me, do you like stories? Yes. Do you like movies? Yes. Do you like true, true stories? Yes. What if I told you it relates to your country, your town, your city? To me, how can you go wrong? And you're right. I mean, I got, I lucked out. I still am in touch with my eighth grade social studies teacher. Wow. Um, I'm still in touch. Yeah. My fifth grade teacher was out of this world. Fantastic. And I have this unbelievable 11th grade teacher. And these people just told great stories and made us memorize the presidents and what happened. And we memorized the presidents in order to get extra credit. Next thing you know, we know these presidents. And it's stuck with us forever. And I went to college. I didn't go to a, a necessarily an internationally known college like almost everybody uh, listens to. But I minored in political science. I had three of the best professors ever that sat in a lecture hall. And the first thing he said, Professor Jerome, is uh, you don't have to come. If you don't want to come, you don't have to come. Uh, if you want to find some of my tests online, you can do that. Not online, but if you want to find my tests, I know you can pass, get past students. But the place was packed every day. Because he sat there with a microphone and he just talked and told the true stories and brought everything to life. And he brought history with political science. And I'm like, if I could be half as good at explaining that. And I would turn around and tell my friends these stories. And they're like, I went in the same class as you. I had the same, t I didn't have the same professor. Why do you care? I just care so much. That helps. Care about the news so much. That helps. But I always wanted perspective on what I was seeing. I remember just being in grade school you know, seeing Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat signed these things and hearing it's historic and I'm probably in uh, seventh, eighth grade. 70, what is, 78, what is the big, I think. 78. Yeah, 78. So I'm in seventh grade. I'm going, okay, this is big, but why is it big? And then it's so complicated, but so in, so engrossing to know the history of that region and then to see Sadat assassinated right after. Mm. Uh, I, I go, I need perspective on this if I'm going to talk about it. And that's what I did. You know, the papers I chose, the, the subjects I, I selected were all around that when I wasn't doing sports. I thought sports was the quickest way to be on TV because I had that foundation. But when the Persian Gulf War started in 93 and I was doing sports, I've never felt this frustrated. But I quickly had to read about everything to find out why Iraq was Iraq, who drew it up, 
You know, who drew up the Middle East? And why are we having so many problems? How do you cover that story and not find it interesting and not find it necessary? So I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, you did. So Yeah, but tell the story. But you hinted at, at one point you just said that, uh, you, you you know, how can I get on TV? So does that mean that as you were going through your undergrad, you already had a sense that you oh, want yeah. to be? Oh, you did. So so there was no, uh, the, notwithstanding your love for history and political science, you, for example, you never thought, oh, let me go on to graduate school and, and you know, become an academic and do this professionally all day long. This was not something within your no. uh, you know set of options. See, I always felt I had a couple of things. I always felt comfortable talking in front of people. I knew I had to get better at it. I always felt as though I wanted to communicate. I love communicating. I used to hop on a CB radio and drain my parents' battery. I didn't know the term accessory as opposed to on. And I used to sit there on the radio, probably dangerous as hell, and talk to people all night. I was fascinated by who was on the other end. I always loved to listen to radio. I had a transistor radio. Just fascinated about the, the possibility of communicating so it was no doubt I was going to major in that, even though I didn't have to major in it in retrospect. I probably would have been better off majoring in history. But I always wanted to communicate effectively and matter. But I never thought I'd be an expert in anything. I just wanted to, I had such curiosity. I wanted to know enough to ask the right questions and have the depth on the issues to get to the right answers. And I said, okay, what do I know? I'm, I live and breathing sports. They always ask me to do sports. I'm an I was college athlete. Average at best. What's but I can't sport? So much about it. Which yeah, sport? Soccer. 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 Are you aware yeah. that you're spot? You're speaking to the the grand wizard of soccer. Are you aware of that? I did not know that. So you 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 just happened to miss all the clips of my ridiculous silky skills on the beaches. You've missed all those clips. That I'm gonna have to go back and get. I, to I'm gonna have I to send you some. Okay, what what position did you play? And then we'll come back to Frederick Douglass and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, in college, outside back in high school midfield. Okay, and I was in this unique situation in that all these Irish, German, and Italian nationals end up going to Massapequa. Right? Mm. Do you remember Gordon Bradley and the and the Cosmos in '72? I, I think so. Like, yeah. Where, where were you in 72? No, 72, I was in Lebanon. But when I came to Montreal in the mid 70s, we then the Montreal Manic became a team in the sure. North American Soccer League. And I was actually as a 16 year old, I was playing against the Montreal Manic. No way. Team. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So See, I, I was. was yeah. Uh, Massapequa, Gordon Bradley was the player coach of the Cosmos. Uh, and they had their best player was Randy Horton then. And they used to play at Hofstra in front of 3,000 people. Nice. And then then Gordon Bradley went out and signed Pele. Of course. And they went to Randall's Island. And then they got Canali and everything. Yes. Gordon Bradley, the coach of the team, was from Massapequa. And I played with his sons. So when he was free, he'd come down and play with us. So uh, back then, we played a 2-3-5. Believe it or not, two backs, three midfielders, five forwards. And wow. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but but we played. We, our A and B team used to play in the state finals. Because and there was no all the parents could coach and we'd help each other out, but we really had knowledge. We had uh, competitions and skill competitions, and uh, my high school was divided in half, and they used to play in the state finals too. So divided in half because the town was so big. And then they, I, I played in college division two. All my friends were great. I wasn't, um, but I had a great A work ethic. Uh, but I should have worked more on my skills instead of working on my fitness. That would have been smart, which I tried to learn in the next phase of my life, work on my weaknesses, not my strengths. You know, it's so, but that's what one thing in soccer, no one ever knew it was important. But for me, my games, I lived and died by my games. You know, it's funny you said about the skills part, because 
there's a story that almost every immigrant from whichever country, whether it's Ghana or myself from Lebanon or in Bolivia, it's roughly the same story. We didn't have enough, uh, you know, to get a soccer ball. So in my case, for example, uh, during the uh, recreation time, we would make balls, soccer ball, using crumpled paper and scotch wow. tape. And now if you're and not because we were we were poor, just because we didn't have a soccer ball. And so we'd play with that. Now, if you're able to juggle an irregular shape like a, you know, what I just described, then you could make an actual ball, you know, write a Shakespeare play for you. And so you end up having kids who all come from roughly similar backgrounds, even if they're from different areas of the world that have very silky skills. So when I now tell my children just play with the ball all day long. Yes, fitness, is, of course, is very important. And positional understanding is very important. But if you don't have those silky oh, touches, then you're never going to be a top player. So I guess that's what you're referring to, in a sense. Yeah. And then I went back and coached. I got five licenses. I pretended I didn't know anything about soccer. Was, How do I teach it? Just because I can play it. So I wanted to learn all the new drills and everything. So I got a C, a B, an A, a national, an wow. advanced national. Wow. Uh, yeah, so... I just approach, like I just try to take it serious, and now they have because I just feel as though when I don't want to be the one to keep a kid from playing. So if I have kids on lines and I'm not making it fun at a young age and and doing those things where they touch the ball constantly, and also the way they did it, why reinvent the wheel? So if you guys have great drills and you guys are professional, let me learn it. But then they have this new parent coaching model has gone away, which is negative to a parent coaching. I get it. But the new model's problematic. You give a 26-year-old money to coach. Now, if that team loses and you're paying that guy, and that guy's not paying playing your kid, your kids become mercenaries. <laughs> and it begins the development of the kid instead of the team. You lose the whole, you know, there's nothing better than a team growing together, winning and losing together, um, traveling together. You know, a few players float in and out. They choose other sports and choose other interests. I get it. But now you have a model where these kids are just entrepreneurs. They're like the mercenaries, parents moving kids around. And now they push parents out. So, Gad, you would not be able to coach your kid in my town. And that's pretty wow. much the model everywhere. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, one more question about soccer. And then I want to return to your uh, fantastic book. Uh, who do you have for the World Cup? Give it to me right now. Who's winning it? I haven't uh, gone heavy into international. Okay, good. New club. Who's your favorite club? I mean, I just but the one of my players that I that I coached since he was seven is on the Red Bull uh New York. Oh, MLS. MLS. Okay. That's you don't consider change. that real, right? No, that's I mean it is real. It's certainly very yeah. high level compared to the old days, but I'm talking international. Are you a Manchester City fan? Are you a Barcelona more, fan? More you more united until everything fell apart. Uh oh. But, yeah, I never lived for the international game like that. I would, I remember doing it. You know, I now I'm fascinated by the fact that non soccer players uh, watch the sport, like non baseball players and football players watch those sports. I'm always fascinated for Americans to say, Yeah, I was watching the Premier League today. I'm thinking to myself, What do you know about soccer? You want to you know, hear they, something? They, I just had Will Kane on last week, who's a big sports guy. Oh, and yeah, I dude. was amazed by by his understand. I mean, he's not, you know, he wasn't born with a soccer ball out of the womb, right? So he kind of fits the profile that you're talking about. You know, Texan boy, you wouldn't think he'd know soccer. And at one point, he described Kevin De Bruyne. Do you know who that is? Kev Kevin De Bruyne is the playmaker of Manchester City. Right. And we both agreed that we, we really love his way of playing. And the way he described him 
was better than any soccer pun oh, that really? I've, ever, I've ever heard. So uh, kudos to him. All right, let's bring you back to uh, to the book for a second. Uh, if we took, so two, first a question about LinkedIn. Can I ask and you a, a question? Oh, please go, go, go. Have you watched the, the, our national team play? I have, I have. Now, this is the first time in my life they have legitimate players in their young, in the early 20s, playing overseas at a high level. True. That he wanted it ever. Landon Donovan, 32 years old, playing in Everton. That was like, you know, like Lexi Lawless playing in Italy uh, for a brief spent, didn't really do well. Pulis Pulisic. So, He's now, playing at Chelsea. Right. So now you have about five or six players playing at that level. Mm. Do you think the U.S. could actually get to the, let's say, the quarterfinals? Quarterfinals is possible. I would say more if they just get to the knockout stage, the round of 16, it will be a big, uh, you know, a big uh, achievement. In a sense, what you described is exactly the same description that applies to the Canadian national team, where you now have several players who for the first time ever are playing, just like you said, in top European sides. Canada hadn't, hadn't, uh, qualified for the world cup since 1986 so i would put both canada and and the us in in sort of the same position which is get out of your group get to the round of 16 and if you can get there i think it's a victory can they go further i probably doubt it but who knows is would coaching be the reason i don't think it's coaching i think this i um, think it's it goes back to what we talked about earlier which is you know the the, the guys growing up in argentina and brazil and france they're they're born straight out of the womb they're juggling the ball they they have this intimate relationship with the ball i'm starting to see canadians and and americans getting much better in their skills but they still don't match the italians and the spaniards right. and right who who uh, didn't qualify who didn't qualify, I know. And I, I remind my Italian friends at the local cafe of that fact every day, Brian. <laughs> All right. Okay. Shall we get back to your book? Sure, sure. Okay. Uh, it, do you agree with the uh, frequent ranking that Abraham Lincoln is the number one most influential American president? If yes, why? If no, why not? Well, one or two. I mean, one, you know, with... What uh, Washington was able to do, being the first, being the first, being the first, and he did not have party politics. I mean, I, I would say absolutely, because I don't see another leader at that time having the the thought, the fervent thought, number one, to keep the union together and knowing that as much as he thought slavery was wrong and it's got to go, knowing, even trying to say my first goal is to serve the country, not my interests, and that's to keep it together. So he walks in, he goes, I'll make the 13th Amendment slavery. We'll leave slavery, we'll put slavery into the Constitution. When they leave anyway, he's able to say, okay, I can't just put African-Americans into the Union side, and I can't say emancipate all the slaves. Believe it or not, and I know this is going to come out wrong, that might have been a sign of great leadership, because you have to know where the country is at the time, not where you want it to be, which we do not have today. People right. are like, oh, here's my agenda. I'm going to jam it down your throat. going to create so much derision. Like whether it's the green agenda that we're not ready for technologically or anything else, instead of what's better for the country. Sometimes you got to fight. Uh, sometimes you don't. Number two, understand the country enough to say now freedom for all. Now African-Americans fight for their freedom. Now we got to rotate generals. Yet he only had a brief stint to the military uh, in these uh, when he was in the Midwest, 
I would say as I think this out, yeah, the 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 the, the uh, intellect to know almost to have great resources on this issue, the humility to understand he doesn't know everything, even though he probably knew more than anybody else around him, the ability to learn from the people around him, to understand where the country was, to persevere through personal travails, as well as watching thousands, tens of thousands of people die and then have to explain that to his fam- their families, wondering at some point dealing with depression, am I doing the right thing? yet gets through the other side while winning re-election in a divided country and then having the vision to say, it's not about revenge, it's about reconciliation. How can you possibly put more on one person's plate and do better than Lincoln did? So that's my explanation to why yes. But okay, now I I, I got this from your book actually that the one of the main points of contention between um, Douglas and Lincoln was the speed at which these changes should happen. Douglas wanted them faster. Lincoln, them, Lincoln wanted them slower. And based on the answer you gave, you seem to think that it was actually insightful and the right you know, position to take to kind of slow it down in order that the, the country doesn't fracture. So in that sense, Douglas was intemperate in his desire to move things more quickly. Is that right? Or he's going just on his perspective, which is not saying he's wrong, but he's not the president. Right. And and I think that he said that in a speech where he said Lincoln was a white man's president. Uh, you know, he was, um, you know, in my terms, and I can paraphrase best I can remember, you know, he was slow and plotting and uh, and frustrating. But in real life, he was fast, deliberate and, con- and de- deliberate in delivering freedom for the slaves because he had to deal with the country, not with the cause. Right. And, and I think that Douglas would realize he was right, but it doesn't mean Douglas was wrong. Douglas, the timing, Lincoln knew the timing. And it's like this, if you're a father and you have five kids, you got to deal with what's best for the entire family, not just what's best for your youngest or your oldest. And that's just it. It's like, well, you know, I would love to go on vacation uh, right now, but I got three kids who are studying to get into to pass their bar and another kid that's going into um, the, the Secret Service and is going to be away for three months. We're not going away this summer. So that's my decision, what's best for the family. But yet the youngest one got screwed because he didn't get a vacation. Now, in a very simplistic way, I'm doing what's best for the family. But you could argue that that youngest kid, we're not doing what's that kid's interest in. So Douglas was an activist. And as soon as he was done with this, he was working for women's rights. Right. And while pushing forward and, and seeing the, the horror of segregation. I mean, I look back at this. I know our country is not perfect. It's so important for you to read Frederick Douglass's words on his life, Booker T. Washington's words on his life. Don't read what other people perceived only on what they said that Douglas went through. When he wrote it in real time about what he experienced. And it's not going to make you happy no matter your nationality or your gender. But when you see how far we've come from when that was acceptable those days, and then you see people protesting in the streets or taking a knee in our country as if we're irredeemable, really irredeemable now? We're the most successful multicultural country in the history of man. And least racist. Yeah. Uh, Again, the least racist. But just because there's racism, it doesn't mean we're racist. Study our past. In the time in which... And judge it on the time in which 
these people lived, not on your criteria to be successful in your mind in 2022. One more question about Lincoln, and then I'll ask you a brief one about Douglas. Uh, I I learned from your book that uh, Lincoln did not view uh, the races as equal. Did that eventually, did he he adjust? Did he autocorrect that? He did. I'm so glad you I'm so glad you asked that question. No one ever asked that question. People either say, oh, it's bad that he made statements that he knows whites were superior than blacks. In the time in which he grew up, he did not see many educated African Americans. And in the North, only three percent of the African American population was in the North, number one. Number two, this guy was trying to survive himself. He was in poverty. His dad was uh, running him really hard, wrestling him for money, working him in the fields, mad at him when he read. So this guy had his head down, became a self-taught lawyer, and we all know that. So when he looked up and looked around and he went down the Mississippi and he saw a slave trade, he saw the auction, he would say, everyone deserves freedom. And he would say things like, who wants to be, if it's so, if it's okay, why don't you be a slave? Who would ever choose that life? But he would say, oh, I don't think whites and blacks are equal. I'm not saying that as an aside. Now, by the time he's done, and he has a chance to meet Douglas and others like him, bring leaders, uh, black leaders to the White House and meet with them and bring up the colonization, which means, sorry, do you want to go back to where you came from? I can arrange it along with a check to spend to build yourself a house somewhere else, which obviously people are horrified by. A lot of people think he did that to show the white people of that day that he tried everything. Our only hope is to live together. That's what a lot of Lincoln historians believe. But I'll let the expert uh, other experts talk about that. But by the time he lands in Richmond with the vacated suit of Southern White House that Jefferson Davis called his house, and he lands with his son, and the African-Americans now emancipated see him, and he sees their reaction. He becomes overwhelmed with emotion. That idea of freeing slaves was that he that was right before him. And to go and when he went and greeted all black infantry units and was overcome with emotion as they cried in seeing him, he began to realize no doubt about it, that people are people. And it turns out that Benjamin Franklin thought the same thing. The smartest man on the planet thought blacks and whites were unequal. As soon as he saw blacks in school and starting to achieve, he said, man, was I wrong? He became the ultimate abolitionists. My sense is Lincoln at 56 would have been much, or already changed. You put him at 66 and 75 if he could have survived that long. uh, There's no way that he would not have seen equality uh, in the races, just just no way. He was too bright. He was too open to understanding that he had much to learn, which is unbelievable to be the smartest guy around and understand how much more you have to learn, which is a lesson for everybody. It's almost like a UFC fighter. It's impossible to get them to fight when they're outside the octagon because they have so much respect right. for people and they always want to learn in the toughest profession, in my opinion. But I think by the time he was done, he was getting there. And overall, Gad, you didn't ask me this, but I'll tell you, I believe that if you put Grant with Lincoln and Douglas in in eighteen in surviving eighteen sixty five, we wouldn't need of the nineteen sixties. If he survived the night the eighteen sixties, because they knew the need to flood the South with teachers and housing, they knew about the difficulty of the transition, and instead they got a racist Southerner that wanted to undo the success of the of the war. The worst possible answer to Lincoln's death. And you saw the, so many great attributes in Grant. And now we know about Douglas. They knew exactly what had to be done. If we had the three of them working together, 
man, we would have been light years ahead. We wouldn't have had segregation and separate but equal, in my opinion. Wow. A uh, couple of more questions, and I'll let you go. I know we have a, a hard stop in a few minutes. Where So you mentioned uh, 1865 to 1965, which relates to my question. Wh where does uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, if you contextualize his importance in, in, in comparison to, of course, Martin Luther King, how do you judge these two? And again, not not trying to play a pissing context, but trying to for the for the people who are listening to this, they most of them would have said, "Oh, Martin Luther King." Of course, I've heard of him, but fewer number would probably have heard of Frederick Douglass. Is that fair, or should they be on equal footing historically? Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, and I should say what I what I said earlier: judge people in which the time in which they lived. So I'm not going to say Douglass better than Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King comes in and he's told to use a certain water fountain. And he started to use the bathroom. He's told to get the back of the bus. He's not to go to those churches, can't go to these colleges. And he's seen the integration happen and uh, what happened from there and some racist sheriffs and things to that. So I'm not going to say that was easy. But I would say that Frederick Douglass, born a slave, being whipped, never knowing his family, no, never knowing his birthday, uh, fighting to freedom, becoming a best-selling author seven years after escaping freedom, an internationally known speaker, as famous in Ireland and what we now know as yeah. Germany and England as he is here, I mean, that's unbelievable in terms of achievement. And which, what I found astounding, you know, his zenith was the, the Civil War, no question. That was his time, you know, so that was his Super Bowl. And afterwards, he kept working and he kept writing and he fought for women with Susan B. Anthony, the right to vote and everything like that. I was astounded to see the Frederick Douglass was first. So I think he had, if I was say I had compared people through time, um, I'm in awe of what they both accomplished and the vision which they had and the fact that they still wanted to be part of this country and make it better rather than go somewhere else where it might have been better. But the fact is, the fact that Douglas did it first and had the singleness of mind to know how wrong racism was and determined to make Americans see it, I think he had a harder road. And I would say this, Bill Foner, somebody I don't know but know of, if it wasn't for him rediscovering right after World War II, Douglas and his writings to bring him back into the forefront, I couldn't believe that he disappeared almost when he died wow. as this historic figure. And he had to be brought back to life and people shining the light on him. And I guess the biggest example of that is Ulysses S. Grant of late. Hmm. Everyone's like, Grant, corruption, bad leader, you know, lucky to be there, um, you know, uh, lost all his money. But then you look at his life and you go, wow, uh, that's an unbelievable story. And what a great man he was. Well, not perfect. Uh, they say if you were to put money on a historical figure, put money on Grant. I still keep most of my money on, on Douglas without diminishing Lincoln or anybody else. Very There's so much to learn. OK, two last questions. Very quick ones. Number one, on a personal note, what's up with Greg Gutfeld constantly ribbing on you? What's going on with that? We're talking about one friendship between Douglas and Lincoln. Can we presume that all that ribbing comes out of love? Gad, how much school did you have you gone to? How many, how many, how many degrees do you have? Four. Okay. Uh, undergraduate, uh, undergraduate, MBA, MS, and PhD. Wow. So if I can't figure him out, um, I understand. But you're the one, you're the guy, you're the expert. You're the one who understands human behavior present day. It's up to you to use your degrees and finally put them to work. Well, I've and got, decide I've got good, what is wrong with him. I've got good news for you. He has invited me. I, I, I did the Gutfeld show 
two, three weeks ago, and he was kind enough to say, hey, if you want to come back every couple of weeks or every every month, so maybe I will use that oh, opportunity to exactly study him and I'll report back to you with my final would you uh, manuscript. Do you would <laughs> I do think that? I could do that. I think I could All do right, that. So when, when are you booked? Uh, well, I'm, I, I, I was booked two weeks ago. I did it, but the next one is probably going to be in mid-December because I'm going to wait till I finish my teaching. Okay, good. I, so then you'll come on the, the radio or TV show and we can discuss what you've discovered. Oh, I would be delighted to do so, sir. I would tell be him happy you're examining him. But I there's could... a chance he might. There's a chance with your diagnosis he'll be institutionalized. <laughs> but I should warn people: I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a. So any analysis is not official. <laughs> All right. To me, it's official. <laughs> Last question: Are there any? uh projects that you are currently working on that you'd like to use this opportunity to promote take it away well i'm going on stage november 12th in uh uh brand uh uh brandon mississippi uh, i'm going to be talking about all my history books in an open setting unscripted uh powerpoint to support but be able to take questions too and talk about the news uh on the 12th and on the 13th in tulsa oklahoma and, and on december 2nd it's going to be televised on fox nation uh, in Newark, New Jersey. So if anybody wants tickets, that'll be great. I hope to see you out there. And I got my whole book tour. But the project I'm uh, with BrianKillMe.com, but the project I'm, I'm working on now is TR and Booker T. Washington, how they combine to move America, race America forward on race. And two unlikely backgrounds. They all had their own um, uh, hurdles to scale. But Booker T. Washington, again, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, too. I mean, I know he's the most written about president after Lincoln. But I'm in awe of him. But Booker T. Washington's another level of greatness. And he predates Norman Vincent Peale and Anthony Robbins on put your mind to something and you could accomplish anything. I mean, when you're born a slave and you're told to go to the salt mines and you're told you can't go to school and you find a way to not only do that, go to college, start a college, lead a college and become a historical figure. You got my attention. Wow. So that will be that's a book in the work in the works right now. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Still in the study. Got you. Uh, listen, stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. Brian, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Best of luck with the success of the release of the paperback of The President and the Freedom Fighter tomorrow, correct? Yes. And now my goal is to go online and watch you playing soccer. Okay. That's I'm, I'm going to send you a couple of clips just to get you turned on a bit. <laughs> okay, Thanks, good. Brian. Stay on the line. Thanks, Cheers. Guys. Appreciate it.